0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This week, we're going to talk about transatlantic trade relations.
1: In May, the Trump administration initiated an investigation into whether $350 billion of imported cars and car parts were a threat to America's national security.
0: It's possible that the president thinks that there's a genuine threat there. To a lot of people, it looked like he was just trying to scare people, like the EU, into agreeing some sort of trade deal.
1: And in July, it looked like this bullying might have worked. The two presidents of the United States and the European Union stood side by side to announce that they had a deal.
2: Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, when I was invited by President to the White House, I had one intention. I had the intention to make a deal today. And we made a deal uh, today.
0: This deal was really a deal to negotiate a future deal.
3: This is why we agreed today, first of all, to work together towards zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This ceasefire was such a relief.
1: But in this episode, we're going to explain why working together toward zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies is not that easy. The EU and the US have tried to get there in the past for all kinds of trade, industrial goods, agriculture, and services. You'll have noticed that the deal that President Trump announced was really narrow on non-auto industrial goods only. But even that won't be easy
0: that narrow limited agreement that they're trying to work towards might be on shaky ground.
1: To help us work through this, I spoke to Arancha Gonzalez. Arancha is now the executive director of the International Trade Center in Geneva, but Arancha has also spent a long time as a trade official both at the World Trade Organization and also before that as an official in the European Commission. So she's really an expert on US EU trade battles. There's really two different ways that the US and Europeans could get rid of their trade barriers. First, through multilateral trade negotiations taking place at the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Or second, through their own bespoke trade deal.
0: For decades, they've been making progress through that first route. After the Second World War, the the multilateral trading system began as the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or GATT. And then in 1995, with the Uruguay Round, that became the WTO, the World Trade Organization. The last successful big round of trade negotiations between the US and the EU was that Uruguay round. And in that, obviously, a lot of other countries were involved as well.
1: Question number one Given that these two have already been negotiating for a really long time, why haven't they already managed to get their tariffs down to zero?
0: And to be fair here, the EU's average tariff is 5.5%, the US's is 3.5%, that's the unweighted average of all of their tariff lines, and that's pretty low, and it is lower for industrial products. But in agriculture, and this is really important, trade restrictions are a lot higher. Back in 1955, the US asked the other members of the GATT for a waiver so that it could stop imports of some farm products with quotas. That waiver was granted, and that opened the door for the Europeans and and others to say, well, if the Americans don't have to follow the basic rules for agriculture, then we don't either.
1: And in the 1950s and 60s, the Europeans developed the Common Agricultural Policy. That involved a massively complicated scheme of subsidies and special kinds of tariffs. And so for decades, the negotiations that happened under the GATT just didn't deal with agriculture. Trade restrictions for farm products remain really high today.
0: Obviously, it's not just that negotiators never got round to negotiating down those trade barriers. It's that negotiating them was really hard. In agriculture, there are very powerful political constituencies fighting for protection. It's hard to get a politically viable balance of the folks benefiting from liberalization and those who lose out.
1: And over time, negotiating down tariffs between the European Union and the U.S. has also become harder just because the multilateral system has become bigger and a lot more complicated. At the beginning, there were only 23 countries that were part of this GATT. Now there's 164 members of the WTO, including ones like China, India, and Brazil.
0: Remember, at the WTO, if the EU or the US lowers a tariff to each other's products, they have to lower them to everyone. That includes China, India, or Brazil, which tend to have higher tariffs. So when the EU or the US do that, they want to be sure that those other countries are lowering their tariffs in return.
1: And in modern-day multilateral negotiations, one of the big sticking points has been the reluctance of those other big countries to cut their tariffs. That clogs up the whole process of lowering tariffs, even when the EU and the United States might be happy to lower tariffs between themselves.
0: Question number two. Why are we not already in a world of zero subsidies?
1: This has been a massive problem at the WTO, in industrial goods, but particularly in agriculture. This is because both the EU and the U.S. subsidize their farmers. The EU is part of the Common Agricultural Policy in the U.S. with its farm bills. Over time, there's been some constraints agreed on these subsidies. We discussed those with Joe Glauber back in episode 48.
0: The last big attempt at trying to negotiate an agreement at the WTO was the Doha round. And then the idea was that the EU and the U.S. would agree limits on their agricultural subsidies. But... One of the reasons this didn't work is that the extra market access on offer to American farmers from tariff cuts just wasn't enough to compensate them for the losses of the subsidies that were being proposed. Now, elsewhere, the EU and the US were also having difficulties negotiating rules on industrial subsidies. Some people argue that this was an error.
1: Here's a racha.
3: And on hindsight, I think where they had these agreements, they spent too much time trying to fix their own disagreements, not realizing that they should have invested maybe a bit more in building a stronger WTO that would help manage the integration of other countries that were very small when this Doha Round started from a trade point of view, but became systemically important. And this is, for example, what happened on industrial subsidies. They US and EU had a big disagreement, for example, over Boeing Airbus. Both sides subsidize aeronautics systems production. They do this in a different way, but they got so embroiled into trying to figure out how to provide an exemption uh, for each one of their own different systems that they forgot that there was a a big country that was going to start building planes uh, very, very soon and challenge Boeing Airbus uh, called uh, China or called Brazil.
1: Maybe if the U.S. and EU had agreed to stronger rules, they would have had better tools to combat China subsidies. Now, a sub-question of question two might be, why can't you just negotiate subsidy cuts as part of a bilateral deal?
3: you provide subsidies in a market, not for a specific country, not in a particular bilateral relationship.
1: When you apply subsidies in a market, that affects everyone around the world operating in that market. But if you're the US and EU, and you're agreeing to cut your subsidies, you wanna make sure that the other big subsidizing countries are doing it too.
0: In general, I don't think the EU and the US are going to be able to work bilaterally towards zero subsidies, however excited President Donald Trump is about that prospect.
1: Question number three is why haven't the EU and the US managed to remove all non tariff barriers through negotiations at the WTO?
0: Non tariff barriers are things like labeling requirements or health and safety standards. When it comes to trade and services, the only trade barriers are non tariff barriers. And those are things like rules on who is qualified to sell services or financial regulation in terms of how companies are allowed to sell into foreign markets. You could think of immigration restrictions as a barrier to trade and services.
1: Economists have been trying to measure the size of non-tariff barriers, and it turns out to be really hard. So take any exact numbers with a pinch of salt. But a study by Joe Francois and some co-authors put the average tariff equivalent cost of these non-tariff barriers as being really high. For cosmetics, the effect of adding these non-tariff barriers is like another tariff of 30% beyond the regular tariff. And for food, it was another 50 or 75%.
0: Non-tariff barriers are really hard to remove because there's often a reason for them that isn't just protectionism. They might be concerns about consumer protection or environmental standards. And you can see how getting 164 different regulatory agencies to coordinate might be really, really difficult.
1: In that area, the loudest concerns you often hear are from people worried about the loss of sovereignty. There's a sense that these regulatory decisions should be made at home. That said, sometimes that battle can be easier when it's between two relatively advanced governments. And it turns out that it is possible to negotiate some of these non-tariff barriers on a bilateral basis.
0: And on February 12th, 2013, President Barack Obama announced the following in his State of the Union address.
1: Tonight I'm announcing that we will launch talks on a comprehensive transatlantic trade and investment partnership with the European Union, because trade that is fair and free across the Atlantic supports millions of good-paying American jobs. It's
0: worth asking, why then?
1: Here's Aracha Gonzalez.
0: For many years, the EU
3: and the U.S., refrained from entering into a negotiation because they thought they had to privilege the multilateral trading system. We are at the point where I think an understanding between the EU and the US about the basics of a sound trade relationship between the two that spills over the WTO, meaning make the WTO part of that conversation, would be extremely beneficial.
1: In the past, the idea was that the EU and the US should try to work within the multilateral system, the WTO, and try to avoid a spaghetti bowl of overlapping agreement.
0: But eventually that changed. They realized that there just wasn't appetite from the other WTO members to agree the kind of deal that they wanted. So they said, fine, TTIP will be an example that other countries might eventually want to follow. The U.S. was also doing that kind of thing with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. And in the long run, the idea was maybe to merge them. And perhaps a country like China would be tempted to join too and sign up to these Western written rules. That was a kind of long game, big picture strategy.
1: So the Americans and the Europeans started negotiating. Tariffs, it turns out, probably would have been relatively easy for them to tackle. The two sides exchanged offers that would have cut 97% of their tariff lines.
0: It was those non-tariff barriers that turned out to be really complicated. The EU and the US each have very well-developed systems of standards and regulations. And in many instances, that meant that a product that worked or was thought to be safe in one market just didn't work or didn't automatically qualify as being safe in the other one. One example is sunscreen. In the US, this counts as an over-the-counter drug, But in the EU, it's a cosmetic. So they have different approvals procedures. And and harmonizing those things just turned out to be a bit of a headache for negotiators.
1: More generally, an agreement would mean saying something like, I agree to trust the way that you keep consumers safe from the side effects of sunscreen or medicines or devices. And I trust that your regulators make decisions based on science and not political pressure. And I trust that the future decisions that your regulators are going to make are also going to be the right ones.
0: That kind of agreement requires fairly intense regulatory cooperation and maybe even new institutional arrangements, ways for the regulators at the Food and Drug Administration in Washington to be informed by the decisions made by their counterparts in Brussels and vice versa, new ways to communicate and to maintain trust.
1: But there are some philosophical differences in the ways that regulators on each side of the Atlantic work. The Europeans tend to follow the precautionary principle, which makes them a bit more risk averse. For example, the Europeans have been really worried about the uncertainty of consuming hormone-treated beef or genetically modified foods, and this has created a conflict between the two where the Americans accuse them of just being non-scientific.
0: I think one of the reasons this is difficult is because there's this idea that there is one single truth, that this is a fully technocratic exercise, but inevitably your domestic regulations are going to be informed by some kind of political process. In Europe, you have a fairly deeply embedded political structure that goes along with your regulatory harmonization, the EU and the US are not going to have that kind of political integration that the EU has. That being said, in the TTIP talks, they had actually made quite a lot of progress on the regulatory side. This wasn't impossible. You shouldn't interpret us just saying repeatedly that everything's very difficult and complex as as saying that it was insurmountable. But a major difficulty was the really obvious one. There were big protectionist interests on both sides. On the U.S. side, there was huge resistance to weakening government procurement rules that favored American suppliers.
1: The Americans were frustrated with the Europeans' unwillingness to open up their services industry.
0: And on both sides, there was agriculture. Here's a rancher. The
3: U.S. has a big interest in accessing the European market, mostly for commodities, agricultural commodities, where the U.S. is extremely competitive. But the Europeans have interest in accessing the American market, not for commodities, where Europe is not competitive, mostly for processed products, for cheeses and wines and, and whiskies, where the Europeans are very competitive. To protect food, this is done through a collective protection, you don't protect an individual producer, you protect the producers in a specific place, because there are specific characteristics that make this place unique in terms of production, and you give the name of the product and you protect the name from that specific place. So Champagne from the Champagne region, Parma from the Parma region, and the list goes on. In the U.S., the system is different. The protection is given to the individual producer, not to the collectivity. It's company A that produces cheese A or or, or wine B.
1: The Europeans wanted the intellectual property of their farmers to be protected through things called geographical indications.
0: These are rules that prevent American producers of, say, feta cheese from calling their product feta cheese. Because the Europeans would argue that the only feta cheese that's really feta cheese is produced in Greece.
1: For current trade, five of these geographic indications seem more important than the rest. Champagne and cognac from France, Scotch whiskey from the UK, as well as Parmesan and Grana Padano cheeses from Italy. Now, these geographic indications were a source of tension, but we shouldn't forget European resistance to opening up the competition in commodities from these mighty American farmers. There was a huge, visceral negative reaction, and it was such a hot topic that the question of quotas and tariffs hadn't properly been tackled by negotiators when the talks actually broke off. That question was so sensitive, it had to get left until the very end.
0: One of the reasons they never got to that very end is because of the other political problems that were emerging with the deal.
1: An anti-TTIP activist movement was started, fighting back against even the idea of a trade deal with the Americans. And partly that was because of Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. European activists were concerned that American multinationals would use the right to sue foreign governments as a way to overturn European regulations for consumer safety.
0: There were huge protests in Britain, in Germany. There was no dramatic moment when TTIP failed. And partly it didn't succeed because of timing. They just didn't agree it before the Obama presidency ended. There was never a deadline, no sense of urgency.
1: Now... Given President Trump's threats of tariffs, there does seem to be a sense of urgency. So let's talk about what the EU and the U.S. are trying to negotiate now.
0: Talks are underway again. Cecilia Malmstrom, the EU trade commissioner, was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting with Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, the United States Trade Representative, just on November 14th, a few days ago.
1: This visit was supposed to be when the EU and the U.S. would have an early harvest on regulatory harmonization.
0: I went to the press briefing immediately after their meeting. And that typing you can hear is Doug Palmer of Politico, who had diligently arrived earlier than me and so had bagsied a better spot.
2: Our our regulatory cooperation, we are both trying to identify a few sectors where we can do some some work, but also talking more broadly about how we can facilitate the processing of what we call the conformity assessments on both sides, uh, how we can facilitate those procedures. We were talking about the pharma sector, the medical devices sector, for instance, but there could be other sectors as well. Our our people are involved in trying to identify what could be done quite quickly because, of course, there are lots of things that we could do that would take longer time, but we are now focusing on more more quick uh, solutions.
0: This was evidence that the Europeans and the Americans were trying to make progress on this regulatory harmonization that had been so difficult under TTIP. Conformity assessments as regulators speak for agreeing to accept each other's standards and regulatory decisions on product safety. And, And really, they're trying to grab the lowest hanging fruit to try and capitalize on this progress that they'd made back then and for the Europeans to show the Americans that, yeah, they're willing to talk and please don't put on tariffs. But... A lot of people had been expecting some kind of joint statement, some kind of statement from the US and the EU saying, yes, we have this harvest. Look at all these non-tariff barriers to trade that we're cutting. But although the Europeans organized this press conference, from the US side, there was nothing. The next day, the USTR published press releases announcing that they had been meetings with Nepal and Ecuador, but there was nothing about the EU. And Cecilia Malmström said that they were making progress, but didn't announce anything concrete.
1: The trump yonker agreement seems to be for this regulatory stuff to be pursued outside of a formal trade deal. Unlike TTIP, where it was part of the package, this time it's going on at the side. It should have been possible for them to have announced something.
0: I'm going to read between the lines here and say that I don't think the meeting went as well as some had hoped. But it also doesn't seem to have gone as badly as some had feared. Earlier in that week, there had been reports that the president would be considering auto-tariffs. And I think in some kind of worst-case scenarios, some had worried that perhaps this meeting would happen on the Wednesday and then tariffs would drop on the Thursday or the Friday. But that didn't happen either.
1: This informs what we think is going to happen with the trade deal that the EU and the U.S. are going to negotiate formally. That's the one that's supposed to cut tariffs. Here's Commissioner Malmstrom.
2: Well, this is not TTIP. It's not even TTIP lite or TDIP-2. It would be a very limited agreement focused on industrial tariffs.
0: These negotiations haven't started yet. In theory, the earliest they could start would be mid-January because of the American process of consulting with Congress. But at this press conference, there were some slightly worrying signs that even this very narrow agreement was on slightly shaky ground. Back in that joint statement from July, President Donald Trump agreed that agriculture would not be in
1: those talks. It sounds like the EU pretty much said, look, if you want a deal, it's going to be too complicated for us to include agriculture.
0: The problem is agricultural interests are very strongly represented in all of the committees that the USTR has to consult with when getting this deal through, when negotiating it and getting Congress to agree to it.
1: And now the US seems to be insisting that agriculture be included in the deal. Uh Uh-oh.
0: The EU also has its own consultations exercise. In the press conference, I asked Commissioner Malmström whether the EU would start scoping if the US went back on their promise and included agriculture in their negotiation objectives.
2: No. We have said very clearly, uh, and President Juncker made that very clearly as well, that agriculture would not be part of such a trade agreement. So it would be only industrial goods which would be good enough. I mean, there's a lot we can do there that would be beneficial both for U.S. and and, and the European Union.
1: The U.S. needs to publish its negotiating objectives by mid-December. If the Americans' negotiating objectives include agriculture, it seems as though the EU is going to refuse to even start scoping. And that could bring the idea of these talks to a pretty abrupt end.
0: This is from the joint statement from President Juncker and President Trump back in July.
3: While we are working on this, we will not go against the spirit of this agreement unless either party terminates the negotiation.
1: My takeaway is the U.S.-EU relationship could break down, and it may seem like these are completely different reasons that have broke down in the past, but they really may not be all that different. In TTIP, there were complicated politics. There was ISDS that was really threatening the deal. Today, it's negotiating with President Trump. There's just very little political appetite in Europe to be negotiating with this particular American president. But even beyond that, the political economy of these negotiations are still really complicated. Now, the Europeans have tried to sidestep that by really narrowing the potential deal on things that they know aren't going to be as disagreeable. They know they can't do agriculture. But at the same time, they've focused the deal so narrowly that there may just not be enough there to engage the critical American interests. And so we just don't know if this thing is actually going to work out.
0: If the talks fail before they even start, then... I think the miscalculation was probably one on the U.S. side. They should never have promised to exclude agriculture if that's not something that they were willing to do. They should have known that farmers would want market access into the EU, particularly as they've been hit by retaliatory tariffs. They should have known what to think about what the agricultural community would want.
1: Maybe all that did was to delay the American tariffs on automobiles. And So we'll see.
0: For now, that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Gary Horlick for talking me through some of these regulatory issues. Thank you to the friendly Europeans who put on a press conference after this meeting. Thanks to Doug Palmer from Politico for supervising the audio recording of Commissioner Malmstrom.
1: And thanks to Rancha Gonzalez at the International Trade Center for providing her analysis.
0: Thanks also to Colin Warren for cleaning up our audio. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. I'm taking a little break from Twitter for a while, but don't worry, I'll be back at some point.
1: I will not be taking a break, so I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to number of times for the US and EU to try to negotiate a trade deal, perhaps two will turn out to be better than one.